If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Drimple. Do you know what? I actually, in awe of you, because you've got a flight to catch in not very many hours. So well done you. Well, if you knew that A, I wasn't packed, B, I wasn't checked in. <laughs> there's there's you, the man I know. Less there he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was half expecting you to sort of turn up in, with socks over your shoulder and piles of laundry all over the place. It's quite a panic. There was a croissant that was hidden and it was out of view. But anyway, that's now well eaten. I'm so glad you have. And and the only reason that you'd be motivated to be dragged out of the chaos that is your packing is because we've got an absolute corker of a subject today to talk about. And now just remind everyone, really, this comes off the back of our wonderful episodes with Orlando Figes on the Crimean War. And just tell us, just for those who may not have, and by the way, why haven't you listened to those podcasts just yet, a thumbnail sketch of where we're at and why the Crimean was such an important place then as it is now but then in particular it was one of the first wars of its kind wasn't it it's three empires clashing there is the ottoman empire which we dealt with in our second series which is under assault by the russians who are moving through ottoman territory not only in the caucasus and in the north of the Black Sea, but also in the Crimea. At the same time, the British are worried that the Russians are becoming too powerful and are encroaching close to Afghanistan and their British Indian possessions, and already they've got Russophobia on the loose uh, in London. 
And finally, we have the Russians themselves, who take obviously a rather different view of all this, and they think that their job is to look after the Orthodox Christians of the Middle East, who they believe not unfairly are under persecution by the Ottomans, that they are needing the protection of the the new Rome, as the the Tsar sees himself. He's the new Caesar looking after the Christians of the East. So these three powers, plus France, which is now trying to show it's still a power after the defeat of Napoleon, all converge on the Crimea. And so there's this clash of three different series. So we're going to have all our different subjects coming together. Exactly. Basically, all of our food groups here. And, <laughs> and today, I'm particularly excited because we're talking about, well, a feminist issue, I think, about women who were right in the middle of all of this, one in particular, right on the front line of all of this, because we talked about just some of the scale of the carnage that took place during the Crimean War. Charge of the Light Brigade, we went through all of that. So you, I mean, you'll know this from schooling here in this country, if you've been brought up in Britain. It was young men, or what do they say, lions led by donkeys, very much sort of a situation where young men in their prime were sent to the mincer. And here in the middle of this, two women, one who in her time became emblematic of heroism and female sacrifice and all of the things that Florence Nightingale has now come to represent. But Mary Seacole, latterly, a lot later, has drifted into a public consciousness. A black woman, a black nurse doctress, and we'll get into that terminology in, in a moment, but largely we really owe a debt of gratitude to our very special guest today, Helen Rappaport. Hard tea. Look what I did there. Very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> we have been discussing Helen's work for, for several weeks now, and yeah. serially mispronouncing your name. Yes, I know. I'm so sorry. I, I mean, I've seen it in print, but we've not met before. But I mean, these are also your food groups as well, Helen, because I mean, yeah. you've written extensively about the Romanovs. Uh, I think you studied Russian didn't you way back yes I, I i studied russian special studies at leeds and my first trade book was actually a, a book called no place for ladies about all the women who went out you know following the army to crimea during that terrible war and uh, i pulled together an extraordinary cast of largely unsung women still this sounds a familiar, familiar field of interest to, to one of our presenters. Yeah. Yeah, I did actually say hello, sister, when she came on, because I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. also I'm very into women who've slipped through the cracks of history. Yeah, me too, very much. Helen, your amazing book, In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon, is going to be sort of the beating heart of, of this podcast. But can we, first of all, scotch a thing that I know often happens to you <laughs> and often happens to women writing about women, which is people seem very dead set on pitting different women in the same yeah. era in a wrestling ring. In the red corner, we have Florence Nightingale. In the blue corner, Mary Seacole. You hate that, don't you? You hate that. Yes, because it's a construct that we have created. It's a modern retrospective construct of a sense of rivalry between two extraordinarily different women who operated in different spheres. And it stems from this kind of the sense that somehow Mary is better than Florence and that back in the late 90s, in fact, the nursing union would talk about displacing Florence Nightingale as their figurehead in favour of Mary. And it's this sense people have that in order to celebrate one, you must denigrate the other and vice versa. And there's been this really quite a bitter camp on the Florence Nightingale side and an equally very vociferous fan 
following, if you like to call it that, of Mary. And in a sense, both have distorted what they both did in their very different ways and tried to set up a comparison that's entirely false. The parallel between them, the link between them, is they were exceptional women in their day at a time of the world gone mad. I mean, this is kind of a protein world war situation that you've got in Crimea where these three great empires are coming together and clashing with each other. The thing I want to say right at the very top, the first important fact we must bear in mind in all this, Florence was over in Scutari, yes, she was 300 even miles across the Black Sea. Okay, she came on a couple of tours of inspection to Crimea. Mary was the one in the yeah. war zone. And, and you know, it's very easy to talk about Florence doing this, that, and the other, but she did it at a remove. And Florence fundamentally was tied down by bureaucracy, fighting the war office. Shall we start by talking about the lady with the lamp? Many of us will have that image of uh, Florence Nightingale, lady of the lamp. She's born into a fairly successful industrialist family from North yeah. Derbyshire. They have money, don't they? I mean, she hasn't come from a, a poor background. And this sets up the sort of the difference between the two women. Well, fundamentally, Florence was of that generation from very well, comfortably off families who, if she hadn't fought tooth and nail to live her own life her own way and do her own thing would have been condemned to a life of virtual imprisonment essentially as an unpaid domiciliary nurse mm. sitting by the bedside of all her elderly aging and sick relatives as a, one by one they popped off and she would never have had a life and she fought it. A little like sort of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who we came yeah. across before. Clever, clever woman. You know, so she studied modern languages, classics, mathematics. That's a very good parallel, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Yes, very like that. Yeah, I mean, I we yeah. sort of buried what, one very funny comment from you. I mean, wh why is Florence called Florence, William? Because, because she's, she's born in Florence. Sorry. <laughs> she's born in Florence. Yeah. <laughs> well, her sister's called Parthenope, for God's sake. What a name. Well, I mean, was there a brother <laughs> called Bogner? I mean, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not terribly, you know, imaginative. So she was an educated woman. She declined suitors throughout life, as you say. You know, she sort of escaped this this life that would have been planned out for her. She was offered a very, very good match with Monckton Milne. Oh, yes, the poet, Richard Monckton Milne. Who, who yeah. sort of at a distance waited for her to make a decision for something like seven years. and But she didn't want to be tied down by marriage and childbirth and possibly early death in labour. She wanted to do something constructive and useful and she wanted to study nursing. And she somehow managed to escape to go to an institute in Germany called Kaiserswerth, where she did do a very rudimentary nurse's training in the early 1850s for about three months. And how unusual was that at this period, that a woman from a good family would train to be a nurse? Almost unheard of, because there was no profession. This is the thing people forget when they talk about Mary and Florence. Nursing did not become a respectable profession for ladies of a genteel background like Florence, i.e. a job they can do if they needed the money. It didn't become that until after the Crimean War. It was Florence who made nursing a respectable job. 
So if you'd gone into an early 19th century hospital, who would be looking after you? Mrs. Gamp. Dickens' Mrs. Gamp was right. pretty much, you know, the, the slightly gin-swigging hospital nurse. The hospital nurses, unfortunately, at the time had a terrible reputation. They didn't really do any nursing. They were there to make the beds, do the washing, empty the pots under the beds, and just generally be dogs' bodies. There weren't any women nurses except in religious orders. Well, I was just going to say, now, religion is important in, in Florence's very, origin very, story. Too. Her yeah. Christianity informs a lot of what she does. When she got to Scutari, they invited genteel ladies to come over and read the Bible. <laughs> read the Bible to the recovering wounded. And I mean, she, she was very much pro a Christian environment for the recovering wounded. Mary, of course, was terribly funny about this because when she visited the wounded in the land transport hospital on Crimea, she said all they wanted was punch and the illustrated London news. They didn't <laughs> they didn't want <laughs> they didn't want to read the Bible. We should perhaps say here that the eighteen fifties was absolutely the peak of the evangelical movement and yeah. the and the Clapham sect was hugely influential at this time. We've touched on it a little bit in our slavery series uh, with all these serious anti-slavers coming out of that background. Mm. But it's also very much part of the story, the background to the Indian uprising, because there's uh, attempts at mass conversion or a lot of sort of Bible reading to sepoys and, and this sort of thing. The same sort of impulse to read the Bible to your wounded soldier also leads a lot of colonels to start reading the Bible to their sepoys on parade. Right. And the famous remark by Tony Blair that we don't do religion in this country. In 1850s, they did religion very publicly the whole time. In fact, there was a problem with some of the nuns, the Catholic nuns, who went out to Florence's hospital. The, some of the wounded complained they tried to convert them at the bedside. Well, that's also something we hear even in, in modern times. Tell me this, at what point, I mean, we've leapfrogged a very nice, nice girl from a nice, nice house, um, defying her parents and going into nursing. That is a big hop, skip and jump. You, you can be doing it in Harley Street. I believe she did do it in Harley Street for a while. She ran a, a hospital for genteel, impoverished ladies in Harley Street. But that is a big jump to get to the Crimean War. What happened in her life that made her think she could do something? Well, essentially, the Crimean War facilitated Florence's career. She might have had a quite different life just running a genteel hospital like that for the rest of her active days. But when the Crimean War broke up, there was a huge public outcry. When journalists' reports came back, not yet from Russell, but from a man called Chenery, who'd been based out in Constantinople, I think, talking about the appalling neglect of the wounded, the lack of any proper medical care. And it was realised that they had to get some kind of nursing contingent organised to go out and help. And this was when Florence was approached, I think by Sidney Herbert at the War Office, and asked if she would be willing to recruit a team of nurses. In fact, a lot of women were very eager and was saying, how can we help? What can we do? We want to go out and help nurse the wounded. So Florence, because she had been running this institute for genteel sick women in Harley Street, was asked if she would take that job on. 
Helen, give us a sketch of Florence Nightingale, aged 34 at this point in her life. What sort of woman is she? Very, very self-possessed, very determined, very unbelievably driven, very self-sacrificing in a way and refusing in any way to compromise on what she saw was her kind of her mission in life. She wanted to see women given a purpose beyond being the angel in the house. She mm. hated that epithet. She hated seeing women locked away at home. And this for her, and in a strange way also for Mary, war was their metier. War gave them that opportunity to expand their horizons. Just for those who may not have an image in their head, there, there are very sort of now ubiquitous images of Florence Nightingale in the, yeah. in the bonnet. They're sort of the middle parting, dark hair, very intense, severe. dark eyes, severe, yeah, severe looking, but also, I mean, I, you know, I can say this because I'm a, a woman, you know, an attractive woman in her prime. And she also has the stuff which I know you bring out very well in your book is that she knows what needs to be done. Yes. And so she does this thing that women don't do at the time, which is she said, if you want me to go out, I've got to be in charge. Talk us through that conversation, how that went down with top military brass. That presumably must have been very, again, unusual in, in this early period. This is long before well, the suffragettes started yet. This was way before, way really. Before, I mean, Bar Barbara Bodichon and the Langham Place group got going in the 50s, didn't they? 50s mm -hmm. and 60s. This She was ahead of her time in terms of forging a career a career that women could do. And nursing was something that they had a natural instinct and capability for. But she wasn't interested in promoting herself. She liked being anonymous. That's why you don't see many photographs of her. She wasn't interested in fashion. Mary, of course, was the antithesis yes. of that because she was a great self-publicist. But sorry, I, I should have answered William. Florence, because she was so gifted, a very good Good mathematician, statistician, this, that, and the other, was born to be a good administrator. And that, in a way, meant she got locked into Scutari and wasn't really able to do any nursing because she was engaged in constant battles with the commissariat to get the supplies she needed and, and to run her hospital efficiently. Because before that, I mean, you know, we've sort of touched on it, but to be wounded was almost to be dead. There, yeah. you know, there would be people with untreated wounds. Gangrene was taking so many who could have been saved had there been some kind of sterile intervention. But important point, I think the, the French, though, are way ahead of the game at this point. They yeah. were much better. The French had a whole network of orders of Sisters of Mercy who were based all around Asia Minor, out at Pera, Constantinople and various other places around the Black Sea. So the French took an absolute run ahead of the Brits when the war broke because as soon as their troops landed in Crimea, they called on all these French nursing orders to come and help nurse their wounded. And these women, Sisters of Mercy of St. Vincent de Paul, were extremely accomplished nurses. Mm. The Brits were way behind in the game. Who did Florence recruit? If she, because she said, you know, leave me in charge. I will recruit the people I want. Who did she search for, and who did she bring? Well, it was a very, very mixed bag of women. As I said, there was no profession of nurses, so they couldn't hire, you know, established nurses. They took a few of the hospital nurses, i.e., the sort of Mrs. Gamp dog's bodies. And Florence made a point of hiring older women who were not attractive and might not 
flirt with the wounded. But most of the women were a combination of Catholic nursing nuns, Selenites, and Anglicans. And they were a mishmash. And of course, throw these women all into the nurses' quarters at Scutari, and you got the makings of a glorious soap opera because a lot of them didn't get on with each other. <laughs> uh, some of them tried to get at the brandy store and Florence had to lock it up. And it was, you know, there were a lot of clashes. And she and she's a she's a tougher. Very I mean, she's thirty four. I'm about to say tougher, but she's not a tougher, but she's thirty four. She but she's made of steel. Yeah. She was old for her years because she had been stuck at home with elderly parents and relatives, always nursing and being the dog's body. She was kind of older for her years, but she had to really lay down the rule with this very very disparate group of nurses who clashed with each other as well as as with her. Wow. I mean, you know, put any group of people, it turns into the Big Brother house very quickly. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. Big Brother. <laughs> okay, so now, drumroll, uh, Mary Seacole's origin story could not have been more different. You know, where you've got sort of Florence Nightingale living somewhere down the road from Lord Palmerston who intercedes on her behalf. She's got friends in high places. People already respect her. Mary is born with none of that. Tell us her story. Well, Unfortunately, Mary was very careful never to reveal very much of her early life because for the obvious consideration that she was born illegitimate of a mixed heritage relationship between uh, a free woman of colour in Jamaica and a white Scottish soldier, probably an officer, but we can't know for sure. So when she later told her story, she cast an absolute smokescreen over her origins and the extended informal relationships that her mother had had with several men and all the half-siblings that I was able to research and find. So she had to keep the lid on her actual background in Jamaica. Where we start really learning anything about her early life is this extraordinary moment when, and it was absolutely unusual in Jamaica then, she married a white West India merchant called Edwin Seacole. Now, till then, she was Mary Grant. If she hadn't married Edwin Seacole and become Mrs. Seacole, mm. I think my long, long search for a Mary Grant wouldn't have got very far because mm. that name, she traded on the name. The husband is an absolute cipher in her life and he died quite quickly. I think basically the marriage was one of convenience. He gave her respectability. He gave her a leg up the social ladder in Kingston and she was his nurse. So in Kingston, Jamaica, I mean, she, she sets up on the, on the back of, you know, her, her husband's reputation and probably funding, a boarding house. And this is the really, really important thing. Her mother ran one as well. Yes. Right. Okay. So she's in, she's in the, the biz. But also what's really fascinating is that she practices traditional herbal medicine. And, and mm. those women in Jamaica who did that were known as doctresses. Now that's quite an alien term to us these days. What was a doctress? What, what were they able to do? The doctor's tradition is, I think, fairly unique to West Indies and especially Jamaica. It was born of what you would call the slave hospitals, which were known as hothouses. These were built like effective prisons, actually. They're pretty grim-looking places, those that haven't completely fallen down. These were built to take in the sick African slaves being brought in to Jamaica who were dropping like flies from the very humid 
um, disease-ridden climate. They come from the dry heat of Africa. And what they did is they put them in these hot houses and used local women of color and black women on the plantations to nurse them. And these women became known as doctresses. And what they did, of course, is they used the local pharmacopoeia. I mean, there were herbs and spices and plants and God knows what growing outside the door that they all knew how to use. And they had this incredibly rich and quite sophisticated range of treatments for everything under the sun. One, one thing in particular that many enslaved people suffered from was this terrible disease called yours. Horrible, horrible disease. Tell us what happens when you have yours. What is that? Oh, it's a horrible kind of fungal. Uh, skin disease, very, very nasty. And um, Mary developed these doctressing skills, but many of the women like her learned those skills from their mothers. So I suspect Mary's mother, Rebecca, had been a doctress, perhaps in a plantation hospital. Mary learned the herbal and actually pharmaceutical skills almost from these mm. skills from her mother at her mother Rebecca's boarding house in her childhood. I think this is something I learned from from your book. It certainly startled me enough. And I, I read your book quite a while ago. But um, in these hospitals, these slave hospitals where women were practicing their doctressing, this is, this is often for slaves who were hurt doing the inexorable work that was presented to them that they often you know died from exhaustion. But is it true? I mean, just Tell us, they didn't have beds or mattresses because they didn't want to encourage people to pretend to be sick. And so that can't have been a lovely atmosphere. It is almost a war footing in those hospitals, that tradition, isn't it? Well, they were effective prisons. No, you're quite right. I did discover that some of these slave hospitals, hothouses, didn't provide beds or proper bedding. They wanted to make it as uncomfortable and unpleasant an experience as possible to discourage malingering. Isn't that astonishing? I mean, again, it literally is all our food groups, isn't it, William? I mean, just, you know, we've done entire... And they did actually, uh, uh, they did actually lock them in. And many of the slave hospitals didn't even have proper windows. Well, they just had metal bars. They were were jails. Mm. But what is so wonderfully rich about that horrible, horrible stain on Jamaican history, on British colonial history, is that this extraordinary pharmacopoeia was developed by the Jamaican women. In fact, one British um, doctor went out in the early 1800s and wrote a whole treatise on all these different concoctions that the women were able to create. Well, I mean, again, and I may be drawing too many lines here, but you tell me, but one of, one of the main conditions that this doctressing uh, tradition treated was flux and fever, and yeah. fever temperature, as, as you'd expect, but flux is dysentery. And what happens on a war front? It's dysentery. And fever, isn't it? I mean, so there is an, an, a whole movement, a whole history of treating exactly the kind of thing that Mary will ultimately be facing in the Crimea. That is precisely why I get so angry that the British authorities did not recruit Mary and many, many other Black and West Indian women who might have been around. We know at least of two other women who volunteered because these West Indian doctresses had precisely the skills of nursing enteric disease, cholera, typhoid, yellow fever, dysentery, jaundice. Mary was highly skilled 
and as were these other women, those were the women they needed to nurse the sick in Crimea. Helen, before we move to the Crimea, take us first to Panama. How does Mary get from Jamaica to Panama? That's not an automatic jump. Well, Mary, of course, was a born entrepreneur. And some people are rather uncomfortable with this, this fact that alongside being a very skilled nurse, doctress, healer, whatever you want to call her, she was a businesswoman. She needed to make a living. She needed to make money. She was a natural born entrepreneur. And of course, Panama in 1850 exploded with the gold rush over in California, because what was happening, all these eager American and other nationality gold prospectors were heading down to cut across the Panamanian isthmus to do the shortcut up and round to California for the gold fields. So there was a lot of interest in making money in Panama. So Mary, being the entrepreneur she was, went out there to join her brother Edward and set up, I won't call it a hotel. I won't even call it a restaurant. I mean, many of the hotels in Panama at the time were basically tents. Right. And it was somewhere to get out the cold and have a hot dinner. And she went out there because she was such an intrepid woman. Well, and you know, it just reminds me of that gorgeous northern expression where there's muck, there's brass. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. You can't say muck. You've got to, it has to be muck. Well, <laughs> there's muck, there's, muck, there's brass. There's brass. <laughs> That's Mary Tutti. She was mm. always game for any stab at making money and making business. So tell me this, because then the, some people, detractors of Mary, say that you know there was a lot of muck in Crimea and there may have been a lot of brass, but she talked about her motivations. I mean, she's, she was always very, you know, she may have been foggy about her background and who, you know, legitimacy and all of that kind of thing. But she did have a great deal of pride in her Scottish roots. And she talked about the soldiers who she was reading about, like everybody else, as if they were, and she called them her sons. Her sons were calling her. Tell us more about that. Well, that all stems from her time in, in Kingston running a lodging house, because in those days, there are a hell of a lot of British Army and Navy based in Jamaica. The West India Station was very busy. And what happened was the officer class, if they fell sick with yellow fever or cholera or one of the awful things that was felling them left, right and centre, they could afford to go and stay in these lodging houses run by women like Mary. They were effectively treated as convalescent hospitals. And that's how Mary got to know all these men from various regiments. And so she developed a very, very close relationship with some of these men. And going back to what you said the, uh, earlier about the evangelicals, one of them, Headley Vickers, when Mary went to Crimea later, he had a Damascene conversion and was out there giving out ham, uh, evangelical pamphlets, which she also handed out. So she was very, very fond of those soldiers they always looked upon her as a mother figure, as a surrogate when they were a long way from home because she could nurse them and she could cook hot dinners. She was, you know, Mother Earth. Give us, a, again, a, a sketch of, of the Mary Seacole that turns up in the Crimea. Yeah. What age was she? And what does she, you know, what does she look like? What does she like? look like? She, she sounds very warm. Yeah. Bos I'm thinking, you know, bosomy, sort of rounded figure. I mean, a very different figure to... Florence. She was, I think, a small, round, forceful, explosive personality. She was born, we think, around 1805, though her absolute 
confirmation of her date of birth has not been found. Wikipedia, I keep trying to put you right, but never mind. Um, <laughs> she was... So 15 years older than Florence? She was 50. When Mary got to Crimea, she was 50, fairly large, very jolly, very loud, very forthright, had had those years in Panama, had seen the world. She'd been everywhere. She was far more world aware than Florence was probably. And she got there and she wanted to help and serve and look after her sons. Did she apply through official routes to go as as yeah. Florence did? And, and, and what did the British say to her when she applied to go and treat their boys at the front? Well, Mary was in Panama when she heard the war broken out. So she got on a ship and went straight from Panama to England. I mean, the other end of the world. It isn't just like, you know. <laughs> do, you know do you know she sailed the Atlantic at least nine times? Wow. And that's right back from the days of sailing ships before the screw steamers. So anyway, Mary went to England. I'm sorry, the dustbin. Oh, that's okay. The bin men are here, everyone. The bin men are... It's a good reminder, actually. They're flashing Generally lights uh, yeah, no. <laughs> You suddenly have a disco background with your rubbish truck. <laughs> Helen, Sorry. this is good. She's got the moves. Don't worry, it happens in this podcast. So so she goes... She, she, so she crosses from Panama. She crosses... She makes the Atlantic crossing. Yeah, she goes to volunteer in London. She goes to the recruiting office... That in London and officer services, she goes to the quartermaster office, she goes to the war office, she trapes round all the official institutions or commissariat offices to do with the war and has the door pretty much slammed in her face. But she has le letters of recommendation. I mean, why? She had letters, she had all the skills, as I just said. Was it just because she was black? Is that why they turned her down? I think, obviously, it was colour. In fact, there was a horrible little scribble on one of the applications for one of the other West Indian women where they actually noted that she was too black and that she might frighten the patients. Luckily, Mary was the kind of go-getting, self-starting woman she was. She was a woman of business, so, okay, she wanted to go to Crimea to help the wounded and the sick. But she could also go and run a business. So that's what she did. Okay, we're going to take a break here and join us after the break when we find out what happens to both these women when they finally get to their destinations. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome back. In the last half of this episode, we brought our two heroines, Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole, to the Crimea, both remarkable, forceful women, but from utterly different backgrounds and with very different personalities. And we have brought them now to the war. Helen Rappaport, with a strong tea, tell us what happened <laughs> to, to, to With Florence. a strong tea and, and rubbish trucks and dogs and, and the most eventful guest, I have to say, we've had in a very long time. So, okay, so, so Florence is now in Scutari. Um, just tell us where Scutari is and what Florence faced in Scutari. Who's coming in to Scutari? Scutari was actually a huge, rambling, filthy, neglected Turkish barracks. The British army had been given the use of this by their Ottoman allies for the wounded. But of course, it was filthy, vermin infested. It had no facilities. And Florence arrived really with a horrible disgustingly disorganized blank page to fill and organize and put straight. And this is where her brilliant administrative skills kicked in. She was in there. She reminds me of our, our last episode. We had uh, the wonderful Lady Sale, who's this sort of <laughs> indomitable woman in uh, in Afghanistan. And, and Florence Nightingale is made of sort of similar stuff. I mean, yes. she's, she's solid steel, isn't she? She immediately drew up great long lists of all the, you know, basins and brooms and equipment she needed to put the hospital right and make it a functioning place for the wounded that were being brought 300 miles across the Black Sea from Crimea. So she had an enormous task just getting the place relatively clean. Then they had to fill endless palliasses with straw. They had to create the beds and the wards and scrub those poor nurses who arrived mm. in that first contingent, having spent 10 days at sea vomiting the whole way. They were immediately flung into arduous, arduous work cleaning the place up. And despite all of these efforts, which are all laudable, these women, and I, I often think we don't think about this enough, they have to still watch men in their prime, in their hundreds, yeah. coming through and just dying, dying in their arms. 50 you or know. 60 a day before she arrives. Yeah. Well, when they arrived, the wounded were there in a terrible state of neglect. Wounds infested with maggots. Men dying unnecessarily of septicemia, of neglect. This is the dreadful thing about the Crimean War, and I'm sure Orlando said it, that there were so many thousands of soldiers who did not need to die. 
Orlando talked particularly of this guy, Nikolai Pirogov, who is Pirogov, at the same time yeah. is improving the Russian hospital. So everyone else has got better Everyone's hospitals. Everyone's doing it better than us. Yeah. I did some work on uh, the Russian nurses were astonishing. And I wrote about them in my book, No Place for Ladies. They were a sort of semi-religious order, not really. And they went and worked with Pirogov, who set up a triage system. And that was so important, that of quickly separating the hopeless cases from those who could be saved. And the Russian nurses, Sisters of Mercy, worked with him in Sebastopol right through the siege, right under constant, constant bombardment. They are absolute heroines. I wrote about them in my book, as I say, but there's not that much said about them. You know, there were many other nurses. There were army wives in Crimea nursing in the field hospitals who never get, a, you know, a, accorded the recognition they deserve. Helen, I mean, you, you, you're painting a picture of, of Florence as an extraordinary woman, a real force of nature. Yeah. But, you know, forces of nature are often blunt instruments. And some of the nurses who were under her chafed under that kind of authority. <laughs> I mean, tell us what they what did they think of Florence? They called her stern, implacable, and worst of all, anti-Catholic. <laughs> There's some lovely stories, but that, the one in particular was this one very bolshy nurse who hated the standard uniform. They made one bog standard uniform in sort of large with long or short skirts and she hated these frilly caps they had to wear she said i came out here to nurse the wounded not to wear this stupid hat and you know she really <laughs> balked and one or two of them florence never you know messed about if people became obstreperous they got sacked but the one problem above all others that florence was ruthless in dealing with was drink she had always believed that booze was scourge of the army. Alcoholism was a massive problem in the British army. And this is a big evangelical thing too, isn't it? It, it? it ties in with her religious thing. Yeah, exactly. It tied in with that. And if she caught any of the nurses drinking or, or being drunk, they were immediately sent home. And this is where our two ladies differ quite fundamentally. <laughs> yeah, that's why she had a problem with Mary. So Mary quite likes a drink, but also realises the value of giving a drink to somebody who is in a great deal of pain and is pretty damn miserable and on their uppers. Well, Mary not exactly is known for her own personal drinking, but the one area in which Florence deeply, deeply disapproved of Mary Seacole was that she sold alcohol and that there were stories coming out of her British hotel. Well, it wasn't a hotel. It was just simply known as Mrs. Seacole's. It was a, a canteen come officers club. There were stories coming out of a lot of drunkenness and late night. Where, where was it? Where was her not hotel? It was about three miles, I think, it, up from Balaclava at a place right. she named Spring Hill. Uh, because it was near a freshwater spring. She had wanted to actually set up in in a light cavalry camp, even closer to the front lines, but British authorities would not allow her. She's an extraordinary woman. How does she get there from Panama? What? It's, it's just, uh... <laughs> I mean, actually, you know, sort of on, on the one hand, yes, you need a field hospital in the field. It <laughs> yeah, just seems like that's sensible. But on the other, what kind of woman says, I want to be where... Hundreds and thousands of men are dying every day. Yeah, it's like going now to someone setting up a boutique hotel in Bakhmut or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. or, or her son. <laughs> yeah. She and her business partner asked if they could set up near the light cavalry camp, which is much close to the front lines. They weren't allowed to do that. So they found Spring Hill and there they had this sort of 
homestead, if you like to call it, which is a real mishmash of, you know, of, of, of a catering storehouse, offices club, uh, you name it. I sort it. of think a bit sort of like a Wild West sort of um, oh, absolutely. scenario, you know, where you've got the cantina and you've got big vats <laughs> yes, and, you know, exactly. people. But, but the fact that she's doing it for money, do we think less of her because she was doing it for money, Helen? Well, this is a big, big stumbling block for many people who admire Seacole or would be a totally unqualified in their admiration is, oh, she went out and did good and did this, that and the other and helped with the wounded and people who needed medical assistance. But she sold alcohol and she ran a store. Well, she couldn't go out there and give it all away for free. She had to fund her enterprise. And of course, in order to make all her preparations, get in the ingredients she needed for her various medicines, to give away free dinners and refreshments to those who in need and take food up to the observation post. She had to make money. Did, I mean, did, did she get rich or was it really no. just a self-funding enterprise just to keep going? That's, that's what you she know, did. You know, there's an interesting thing I discovered. That it goes back to the war correspondence, including, I hate to say it, our hero, William Howard Russell. At the end of the war, when Mary um, went bankrupt because the war ended suddenly, guess what? All those officers had been, and war correspondents, had been putting their stuff on tick. So basically, you know, the officer class, many of them never paid their bills. The journalists didn't pay their bills. And this all contributed to the huge debts Mary had at the end of the war. Right. Well, let's, let's, let's not get to the end of the war just yet. Yeah. Helen, just if one had asked Mary when she arrived in the Crimea, why she'd come. Would she have said that she'd come to help her, her soldiers or would she say she'd come to, uh, to start a business? How did she vocalise what she was doing? Well, publicly, she always made a point of saying she went to be with her sons to offer her help to the British Army because, of course, she was a great patriot. She wanted to serve queen and country and do her bit for the war effort. So I think her primary impulse was definitely to reconnect with many of the men in the British Army she'd known in Jamaica. Well, there are easier ways to make a living, let's face it, than going to the front. You know, she didn't have to go all that way to make money. This is an enterprising woman. <laughs> Panama to yeah. London. To Constantinople. She's a woman with a plan. And she's becoming not Mary Seacole, she's becoming Mother Seacole. She's she not even Mrs. Seacole. So yeah. is that what the soldiers call her, Mother Seacole? It's very interesting. They called her Mother Seacole, Auntie Seacole, Mrs. Seacole. With great affection, they absolutely revered her as a mother figure. But of course, there was a slight problem with her being called Mother Seacol because Florence over in Scutari had nominated herself as Mother of the Army. So I think <laughs> that's where you get some unconscious... Eddies of competition. Eddies of competition. Well mm. said, do, yeah. do, they ever, do they ever cross paths? Yes. Mary, when she stopped off in Constantinople, waiting for a British commissariat boat to take her across to Crimea. She went and paid her respects to Florence up at Scutari and was absolutely horrified at the suffering she saw there, not because Florence had neglected the men, but because it was so an many. almost impossible yeah. task. There were so many. And, of course, as she walked round, having said hello to Florence briefly, walked round, she kept hearing voices say, oh, Mrs. Seacole, Mother Seacole, people who knew her in Jamaica, called out and she went and adjusted a bandage or patted someone's 
popular and made them more comfortable. And, and what was her reception by Florence like? Well, a lot has been made of it, and we only have Mary's account, so we only have a one-sided view of it. You get a sense that Florence held her at arm's length. She was slightly frosty, but she was very busy. But in a sense, again, in in that period, that's not entirely surprising. No, a grand no. white woman, formerly employed by the government, and and the other is a a businesswoman from West West Indian background heading to the Crimea. You wouldn't expect them to fall into each other's arms. How much how much we might want that now. But what's quite interesting is that they assumed Mary had stopped off to volunteer to work with Florence there. Nothing of the sort. She makes Mm. it very clear. She didn't want to be stuck in Scutari, the other side of the Black Sea. She was going to the front. She wanted to go to her sons at the front, not be miles and miles away from them. And I really, I'm very struck by, you know, you, you said that she was very big on promoting herself. And even in her memoirs, she talks about, you know, the way in which she was greeted by by other officers, I mean, uh, and soldiers. She says in her memoirs, what a shout they used to be when I came out of my little caboose, hot and florid, and shouted, rice pudding day, my sons. <laughs> I love it. <that. laughs> I, I have this vision of Mary, Christmas 1855 in Crimea, up to her armpits, boiling Christmas puddings and making mince pies. She had so many orders, she couldn't cope with them. And, but from scratch, but from scratch. You know, yeah. she did everything like just in, in the middle of a war from scratch. In the middle of the war zone mm. with these rather unheralded two West Indian cooks and probably a few other locals helping. So I'm just going to read you a little thing from the Times and then we should talk about, because um, it's fascinating, we should talk about what happens after the war to both these women. But the Times in September 1855, uh, I've just quoted, in the hour of their illness, men of the Army Works Corps had found a kind, successful physician in Mary Seacole who cured all manner of men with extraordinary success. So, I mean, you know, her. Yeah. she's making a difference. She's not just making people happy no, as Mother Seacole, no. as a, some kind of, you know, Bob Hope figure on the front line. She's, <laughs> actually, she's actually curing people as well. Let's now move. So the war finally grinds to a painful end. Tell us what happens to both these women who, who really have defined who they are during, you know, the fire of conflict here in Crimea. Well, what I think is, is kind of really sums it up in a nutshell is... What they both go back, they're evacuated, go back to England in the late summer of 1856. Florence Nightingale locks herself away in Harley Street and refuses all and any publicity. Mary courts it. <laughs> Mary's out there saying, I am a Crimean war heroine. She's loving it. Talk about 15 minutes of fame. She had more than 15 minutes worth and she reveled in it because she was absolutely categorical. She don't it. Is she covered by the press? Who's writing oh, about God, her? Oh, God, yes. By the time, this is the amazing thing. This is a black woman from Jamaica in the mid-1850s comes back to Britain as a national heroine. Not only that, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind from all the research I've done, she was the most famous black woman 
in the entire British Empire. There wasn't anyone like her. No, and adored because, I mean, you know, yes. she comes out, you mentioned that she, you know, Thomas Day, the Chancellor, you know, they, they go bankrupt during the, this, this Crimean experience because of all these officers and journalists who never pay anything. But the British public do rally around and kind of bail her yeah. out, don't they? When Florence is locked away in her room, Helen, she's haunted by numbers, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, statistics, again, she's going over and going over because, I mean, her, in a way, hers was the most joyless, appalling existence during the war because she just saw men die by and large, didn't she? And, and, and it's even worse when she goes back because she, first of all, has pretty much a nervous breakdown. She's pretty ill anyway herself. She'd been ill out there. And she starts analysing because she was a brilliant statistician. Is it what we call post-traumatic stress? I absolutely, mean, yeah. absolutely. She starts analysing the statistics of, of deaths and wounds and stuff of her hospital. And she comes to the appalling admission to herself that in many ways her hospital did not do as much good as it should have done because of the rate of infection, because there was a, had been a problem with what they called miasmas in the air. And that for all her scrubbing... It was built on a cesspool, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, for yeah. all her scrubbing and cleaning and regimentation and dictatorial control of the nurses, she had done everything she could, and yet the men kept on dying because mm. of infection, because of septicemia and all the other things that were insidiously spreading around her hospital. Mary, of course, in Crimea was much more effective because the people she helped were out in the open air and they went to her as soon as they needed help and yeah. didn't have to sit on the quayside waiting for a ship to Crimea. The public, you, I mean, you've said the public adulation for, for Mother Seacole was, was palpable. Florence Nightingale too. And what about, you know, oh, sort of was, royalty? Yeah, what yeah. about recognition from, you know, the people who really matter, Queen Victoria and so on? Oh, well, this is another kind of pet subject of mine. The minute Florence Nightingale came back, she actually went up to Scotland to visit a friend uh, who lived near Balmoral. The minute Queen Victoria, who was up there with Albert, heard that Florence, her heroine, was in the era. She demanded an audience with her and interrogated her about her experiences, obviously, in the war. Queen Victoria did this with everyone coming back from the war. She demanded they come to tea and tell her everything. Now, this is where I think Florence scotched it for Mrs. Seacole being invited to tea because the Queen had invited black people to tea before and she never did with Mary Seacole. And I cannot believe it because she must have been gagging with curiosity to meet Mary Seacole. She was a national heroine. Her own relatives, you know, Count Glycan, Prince Edward of Saxe-Weimar and Duke of Cambridge, a top brass in the army, had all known Mary in Crimea, knew of her good works, and yet she didn't ask her to tea. I think it's because Florence put the kibosh. I really do. Do you have any evidence for that? Is there anything? No, my instinct. Because, and it goes back to what I said earlier, Florence disapproved of Mary for three things. She thought she was a quack. And she said that privately to her sister, Parthenope, that when she was ill in, in Crimea on the visit, oh, if Mary came to help, she'd only quack me. She deeply, deeply disapproved of Mary selling alcohol. And that was anathema too. I'm sure she would have told the Queen about that. The other thing is that she, of very, very few people, knew that Mary had an illegitimate daughter 
by a white British officer. Now, those three things would be enough to put good old Queen Vic, respectable Queen Vic, off asking a nice, jolly black woman to tea, wouldn't they? Well, listen, it it has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today thank you so very much and, yes, and, and congratulations also, on your work and research which is no i mean yeah. this is painstaking work putting putting women back into the place where they are known is no small task so thank you so much for doing that and also for telling us all about it helen rapaport very 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 well done a woman after anita's own heart I know. can you tell i'm just very excitable today anyway that is all from us join us again for another episode of empire till then it's goodbye from me anita arnon goodbye from me william durample 